Recovery Elevator, Episode 77. There really wasn't any times where I was trying to control it. I, I didn't really ever care about controlling it. I thought the way I drank was normal. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to my Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I've been sober for one year, 10 months, and three weeks. On today's podcast, we've got Weston. He's 33 years old, grew up playing sports, and got sober as an atheist. Wait a second. You don't have to believe in God to get sober. Weird. Before we hear about something that I definitely would have missed had I been drinking, let's hear from Cafe RE. Before I got sober, I felt alone. It felt like I was the only one in the whole world who found it extremely difficult to stop drinking once I had started. With Cafe RE, I now know I'm not alone. In fact, there are so many people all around this world just like me. In Cafe RE, for $12 a month, I get access to a private, unsearchable Facebook group where I can connect with other like-minded individuals, meet with them face-to-face in several weekly live webinars and meetings, I can get paired with an accountability partner who has a similar sobriety date as mine, I can attend in-person meetups and attend exclusive sober trips to places like Costa Rica. If there's one thing I've learned in sobriety, it's that I can't do this alone. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code ELEVATOR for your first month free. Again, use the promo code ELEVATOR when signing up for your first month free. Growing up, I loved camping. Some of the best childhood memories I have are of my dad and brother and my mom camping down in Moab, Utah, going to Lake Powell, just being in the great outdoors. Camping used to consist of fishing, watching the sunrise, watching the sunset, hikes, chasing snakes and squirrels, spending time with family, a loved one, and friends. But as my drinking changed and evolved, so did the way I camped. In the last five, six, seven, eight years, camping involved three things, hot dogs, beer, and passing out. Waking up at 7.23 a.m. in Moab, Utah, when it's already 98 degrees when the sun hits your face, while having a massive hangover is absolutely miserable. The things that I loved about camping no longer took place. It was just hot dogs, a shit ton of booze, and passing out. That's basically it. So if I were still drinking, I'd probably still be camping. But what happened a couple weeks ago, definitely I would have slept right through. So I'm in the back of my truck car camping. My dog's ears perk. Ben, that's my dog's name, he hears something out in the wild. This was around 1.30 to 1.45 a.m., a time where if I had been drinking, I would be passed out cold at this moment. However, Ben's ears perked. I also heard it. There were small sticks breaking in the distance. And then, snap, a large stick breaking in the distance. So I'm sleeping in the Rocky Mountains up in Montana. There are grizzly bears, there are wolves, there are cougars. There are things out there that are very dangerous. But I'm in the back of my truck. I've got my bear spray. I could just pull the tailgate up if it comes to that. But I flip on my headlight and wait for it. This is the amazing thing that I would have missed. Goats. Yep, goats. Not like the petting zoo goats, but I'm talking the Rocky Mountain goat. Or as nobody knows them as would be the Oriamnos americanus. These are the large hoofed animals that have the white large coats that hang out on super steep rock edifices. But there wasn't one goat. There was five. There was a billy. And after doing some Google research, I can call them the right names. There was a Billy and there was a Nanny, a mom and a dad, two baby goats. And then there was another goat a little larger than the babies, probably a cousin or a friend staying the night with the family. I, I don't know. But the Billy was probably 350 pounds and stood over four feet tall. They were huge. And since these goats don't have too many natural predators and the ones that do, 
look like a cougar, look like a wolf and a grizzly bear, not like a 5'8 white guy in a standard poodle. They didn't do anything when I popped on my flashlight. And since I've been to petting zoos, goats are fairly tame, I started walking down the trail a little bit. The goats are about 50 yards from me, and they kept approaching. 50, 40, 30, 20 yards, maybe even 10 yards was this family of goats, Rocky Mountain goats. And this is also why this is so special, and I would have completely missed this moment. While I was walking down the trail to see the goats, my eyes glanced up. I saw the Big Dipper. I remember my dad telling me how to locate the Little Dipper using the two stars on the Big Dipper. There it was. I saw the Little Dipper. I saw the North Star. I saw a couple other constellations that my dad taught me when I was a kid. Some wonderful memories came to mind. I noticed the air was brisk. Not too cold, just perfect. I could see almost every single one of the 100 billion stars in the Milky Way. The smell of cooling pine trees permeated the air in my nostrils. Nothing at that moment needed to change. I didn't feel the need to turn the heat up, turn the air conditioning on, turn the volume up and the music. Most importantly, I didn't need to drink a Keystone Lighter 50. And I've told you before in this podcast, one of my favorite quotes of all time comes from the movie A River Runs Through It. That is, although life is a work of art, the moment cannot last. And this moment, Recovery Elevator, was absolutely incredible. I wanted it to last forever, but I knew I had to cherish it and be in that moment. A moment that I would have 100% missed before. Now you could argue that this could have backfired, that I got out of my truck and a grizzly bear mauled me and I no longer have my left leg. But I would have been fully present in that moment also, regardless if I had wanted to or not. Before we hear from Weston, I want to talk about the memories component that I am now getting back while being sober. I'm not much of a violent guy. I'm not a guy that'll like punch through a wall or kick things when I'm angry. But there was a time in 2009 when I was house sitting for my parents. I was staying at their house with their poodles. All right, I lived at home, so I basically just switched bedrooms, but I was watching their poodles and house sitting. And while I was drinking alone, I got pissed off because I came to the realization that I wasn't living a life worth living. I wasn't compiling any memories worth memorying. The previous memory that brought a smile to my face was like three to four years old. I wasn't doing anything worth remembering. I was wasting the oxygen I was breathing, wasting the food I was eating. I wasn't creating anything worthwhile. I wasn't establishing relationships with people. I wasn't enjoying life. And at that moment, I took my arm in a sweeping motion on the dresser, on the nightstand, on the table, on the bed, and cleared everything. I was pissed. I knew something had to change. That was 2009. I quit drinking for the first time on January 1st, 2010, so things did change. However, my journey had to continue much longer till September 7th, 2014. I've been camping several times since then. A lot of my friends are normal drinkers. And some of my friends, when we camp, they go way overboard. And when I return to camp at 6.30 a.m. after seeing an awesome sunrise, I almost feel bad for them because they're still going to be sleeping for another two to three hours. I think it was one time in 2007 I went camping in Colorado. I passed out in my sleeping bag on top of an ant pile. Not on top of those black ants that are just kind of a nuisance. These were like the big red biting ants. And I, when I woke up like 4 or 5 a.m. to like hundreds of bites on my leg, I knew it that I was sleeping on an ant pile or something was not right. However, I was still so hungover that I went back to bed and probably got another 75 to 100 bites. So now let's hear from Weston. Weston, how are you? Oh, I'm doing all right. Thanks for having me on. Pretty pretty excited for the opportunity. Yeah, Weston, thanks for joining us. You know what? I'm going to go ahead and answer the first question, Weston. How long have you been sober? You are two days away from three years of sobriety, my man. How does that feel? Well, I mean, I, I still have to make it to those two days. 
right? And right now I'm in a place where I'm counting days again, and I haven't had I haven't had to count days since my two year token. Um, so that's I'm kind of in that weird place where I'm back to counting days, and I kind of want to get past that. You know, I want to get to this milestone, celebrate it with others, and then just kind of move on and get back to where I'm just living life and not counting days of sobriety. I really want to ask a question about the counting days, but before we get to that, give listeners a little background about yourself, Weston, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, how old are you, do you have a family, and what do you like to do for fun? I am from the Indianapolis, Indiana area. I live in a suburb just north of of Indianapolis. I am uh, 33, turned 34 in August, married to celebrate our seventh wedding anniversary back in April. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, Amazing little girl. She's three, turning four in September. Um, Pretty much the most important thing in my life other than my sobriety. She's three, but she's going on about 13. Um, (laughs) Very, very sassy, a lot of of attitude. You know, I see so much of myself already in her. With regards to what I do for a living, I actually work at an addictions treatment center here in in, in Indianapolis, and um, my, my title is recovery coach. Yeah, and we can we can get into a little more of the the specifics of that and and what that job entails, and it kind of coincides with my story in general. So I'll, I'll leave kind of some of the details to to later in my story. Gotcha. And be, actually, let's do this question first. Yeah, let's talk about the podcast title, and then I've got two questions after that referencing your back to counting days, and then you also mentioned that your most important thing in your life, other than your family, is your sobriety. But let's talk about the podcast title. When did you realize it was time to quit drinking? Was it three years ago? Was it nine years ago? um, You know, what happened? Was it a bottom? What made you finally decide three years ago to quit drinking? It was, it was definitely my bottom was, was three years ago, almost to the date um, that, that as, as we're speaking is is almost exactly three years to the date that I tried to, to enter a treatment center after waking up face down on my mom's couch, not knowing how I got there, not really remembering much of the prior almost 24 hours. This, this is like a, a recovery focused podcast. So there's going to be, there's alcohol references. There's lots of drug um, in my, in my story as well. By the time I was ready to get into treatment, I was highly addicted to Klonopin, the, the benzo, it's a sedative. Yep. And I was drinking on I was drinking on top of those for at least the last year, two years of my drinking, and came to and I just saw this look of disappointment in my mom's face that was different than any other time. And I felt it I grabbed I felt in my pocket to see if I had my phone, my keys, because I'm like I, I had no idea how I'd gotten there. And I reach into my hand and I see that I have a bunch of pills that aren't mine and I she she quickly tells me that I had gone through her medicine cabinet and, and stole her, her her medicine and you know she just had this look on her face I went and laid back down woke up like an hour or two later and my stepdad was the first person that out loud said I think you need to get some help with this and what did you say when your stepdad said Weston I think you need to get some help with this what was your reaction 
I might have said, yeah, probably. <laughs> that's, that's the type of, you know, that's the type of statement that, that would have come out of my mouth. Or I might not have said anything and just, you know, tucked my tail in between my legs and found my way home. I, I ended up down there because on that Friday, my wife had had enough and basically asked me to leave as politely as, as, as she was able to and went on a 24-hour you know, bender of, of drinking, taking pills, and then, like I said, woke up face down on, on my mom's couch, and the prior 24 to 36 hours had to be told to me in, in little snippets. You know, I, I still to this day don't have the complete story of that last 24 to 36 hours of, of drinking and using. And Weston, talk to me about your drinking habits before July 8, 2013. How much did you drink? And did you ever try to monitor that, almost like put systems in place? Like, look, I'm not drinking before 5, and did those systems ever work? <laughs> no, they, they, they certainly never worked. We'll just get that out of the way. Um, <laughs> it's like a question I was, that I always I was, know. I already know the answer to that question, but I, I'd still, <laughs> I'm curious because like my disease in the back of my mind is like, wait a second, right. maybe Weston has the secret, but no, there's no, there's no <laughs> right, secret trick out right. there. <laughs> yeah, let's see. I was a blackout drinker from, from the jump from the age of 17 when I got drunk for the first time, blackout drunk from the first, from the jump, you know? And so I, I don't, there really wasn't any times where I was trying to control it. I, I didn't really ever care about controlling it. I thought the way I drank was normal. I thought it was normal within my family, the way my family was set up. I, I, I was proud of the amount of alcohol that I can consume and still be fairly functional. When it was when it was at its worst, there was definitely times where I was physically addicted to it. Waking up um, with the shakes, um, experiencing DTs, you know, full body convulsions, anxiety through the roof on a scale of one to ten. My anxiety was like a twenty, and couldn't function without without that first drink. By the time I was ready to go to treatment, I wasn't at that point with alcohol anymore because the, the pills had taken over, but I was still drinking an obnoxious amount and drinking a ridiculous amount on top of those pills, but it was the pills that I was physically addicted to by the time I went into treatment. I don't think, I don't know if I was physically addicted to alcohol by the time that happened. Sure. When you say pills, are you referencing mostly the clonopin, which is a benzo similar yeah. to alprazolam, similar to Xanax and Valium, those, mm -hmm. th those type of pills? Yes. Yes, gotcha. absolutely. And yeah. the, maybe you can comment on just how volatile of a combination that is because benzodiazepines, mm. which is clonopin, it's basically mm. alcohol in a pill format and mm. you're downing it, you're chasing it with alcohol. That's pretty crazy, right? Yes, yes. As I referenced, I work in a treatment center and I've come to, to find out that there's, there's three substances when you're coming off of them that if you've not done properly, you can die from. Alcohol is one, benzo is one, is one, and barbiturates is the other one. Barbiturates aren't such a big thing in 2016, not something that we see a lot of, of anymore. Those are the two. So I'm consuming them at the same time, and it's extremely dangerous. Yeah, I when, when I was drinking just alcohol, I was a pretty terrible drunk, mean, loud, obnoxious, but my friends and family would 
you know, when they when they saw me on both of them, would just tell me that it was just a whole new level of darkness that they could barely recognize who I was as a human. That you know, there was just this darkness to my nature that they just were terrified of. Now, and, did you see a progression from this age seventeen? You and I got that in common. The very first time that I drank, it was, it was at thirteen. I blacked out and I hit the road sprinting. Did you see a progression? Mm-hmm. Even though, like the first time you drank, you blacked out, but the progression for me, it happened really slow, almost too slow that I couldn't see it. But when you're looking back, it's like, oh, it's obvious. I was getting worse over the time. But what was your progression like? And did you notice it was getting worse and worse? Well, I feel like. When I started drinking, I started using, I I was trying to play catch-up. I didn't drink, use anything my first three and a half years of high school. Because I played football and I wrestled and I, I, I had a lot of fun playing football. I didn't want to do anything that would harm that potential. So by that time, I didn't wrestle my senior year so second semester of high school it was just off to the races sure so i feel like from that point i was trying in my head maybe subconsciously to catch up three and a half years of partying and using to the point where i don't know how much it progressed because i was drinking so much and using so much from from that point that it progressed fast um, I didn't have that that period of time because I was going away to college, you know, just a couple of months, you know, probably six months after that first drink. And by the time I went to college, you know, forget about it. Uh, that's where it's, it's professionals, you know, it, that's, <laughs> it's no more amateur hour. You're, you're running with the professionals once you start going to school. Yeah, and it, those are almost like stripes on your arm. It's like, whoa, you got to check out this guy, Weston, man. He can handle his booze. Weston, come on over. Yeah, I don't know how much they were saying that when I was 18, but, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and, Weston, you mentioned something earlier that uh, that I've, I haven't heard yet, and I'm curious to hear about it, but I've thought about it a little bit, and I think I know what you mean. Tell me about your back to counting the days. What does that mean? Mm, okay. In those in the early days of, of sobriety, you know, I, I was counting up to 30 days. I was counting up to 60 days in in waiting to get that token in order to get some acknowledgement like oh hey good job buddy pat on the sh- pat on the shoulder you know the, that stuff kept me motivated to keep going to the meetings getting those next tokens making it to a year and kind of proving to myself like oh hey you you can do this for a year and it was probably after my 18 month token that it was kind of like, okay, you know, let's let's make it to two years. And from two years to just about to a couple of weeks ago, I'll look at my, my app every once in a while to, to see where I'm at. But now I'm to the point where I'm back to counting those individual days leading up to that third year where I haven't been doing that for the last 11 months. I've just been living life and, and just knowing that, yeah, like I'm getting more days, but you know, how we have today, you know, but kind of living more where I'm just trying to get through each day and, and, and it's not really a comfortable feeling. Oh, okay. That's, and that's what I thought. I thought, okay, your pink cloud is gone. And for me, the same <laughs> thing, like I, I got, I came out of the gates hot. I got my six months, you know, my month, my three months, my six months, my year, 18 months. 
And, you know, and then I, I kind of hit a rut and that's kind of, I'm going to be, I'm going to be transparent with listeners is I'm kind of in a rut in my sobriety and it just tells me I need to get more plugged in and, and get mm-hmm. back in touch with my recovery network because it, I am back to one day at a time. And is, is that mm-hmm. kind of what you're getting at as well? Well, my program is based in the idea of one day at a time. So I, I don't think that that's necessarily too much of it. Once my mind was able to flip from, oh, I can't drink for the rest of my life. I can't can't use ever again. Once I changed my mentality to just doing it one day at a time, it's, it's, it was like a, a whole new world. It was a whole new perspective. So when I'm talking about counting days, it's just counting days up until that three-year celebration, that three-year token. That, that's what, I'm, that's what gotcha. I'm kind of referencing when I'm talking about back to counting days, you know. Gotcha. It's, and what are you going to do just, for your three-year celebration? Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm making it sound like it's this huge, like, you know, day-long party or, or something. But I'll, I'll go to this meeting where I found my sponsor three years ago, and, and he'll present me with my, my three-year token there. It's not a meeting I go to anymore because it's actually held at my place of employment. So, you know, I, I don't spend... I don't really spend time at meetings in my place of employment anymore in case I see former or current patients. Sure. And I'll, I'll, I'll spend some time um, the, the day after, you know, that whole week visiting some, you know, my, my normal meetings and, and announcing like, hey, you know, I got three years. Again, just to, just to show people that it's possible and and people that have been sticking around hopefully will get something out of the fact that they're seeing me stick around or maybe they didn't think I would stick around from at the beginning. Yeah. And, and comment a little bit more on what you said earlier about the most important thing in your life is sobriety. And you, it sounded like that comes above your family and your beautiful daughter. Yeah. If my feet aren't firmly planted in recovery, if it's not in the number one slot, I lose everything that's underneath it so it's great to have a good job it's great to have my house it's great to have a car it's great to this and that but if anything goes above that recovery then i end up losing it anyway so why not just keep recovery number one draw a line and get to keep everything that's underneath it listeners that is a huge value bomb right there that weston did a great job of making very simple in my life, recovery is number one. It comes above my dog, my lovely standard poodle, Ben, my family, every, everything, because it all goes to crap when I start drinking. Um, and, and Weston, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk to you about something I'm real excited about that we were talking about before we started recording this. It is the whole God word in AA. I've, got, I've gotten a lot of emails saying, well, you know, I don't know if AA is for me. It's a religious-based program. And you were talking about how for nine years that one word, G-O-D, God, kept you from getting sober. And, and now you go to like a meeting, like an atheist meeting? or Yeah, just expand on that. I, I can't wait. Yeah, I was, I would, I would say that I was, you know, agnostic through most of maybe junior high in, into high school once I learned what that word meant. And what know, does that I, word mean again? Agnostic just means without knowledge. It's, it's an individual that 
doesn't claim to have knowledge that God exists and doesn't have knowledge that God does not exist. But they do believe in a higher power of some sorts, correct? They can. There, okay. There's that's that's the only basis of of needing to know anything is that you don't know anything, and where you go from there, it, it's up to you. My my sponsor um, labels himself agnostic, but he says that he grabs pieces of this and this and this as part of his higher power. His son is part of his higher power who passed away from the affliction. So, yeah, agnostic doesn't necessarily mean anything other than you don't know <laughs> at, the, at the end of the day. Gotcha. So you went to your first meeting. You heard the word God, and you're like, oh, I'm out. Yeah, and I had, I had done a little bit of research online and, and looked at the steps a little bit. Before I go too much further, I, I was first exposed to, to AA when I was growing up. My dad just celebrated 29 years in the program, I think two months ago. So I had a little bit of knowledge, you know, like I, I knew what the big book was in general. I knew, you know, he had this big blue book that said Alcoholics Anonymous on it. I knew he had um, a keychain that had the serenity prayer on it. I knew a general reference of the steps. He didn't, he wasn't a, an active member of 12, of, of AA. He was dry drunk for a, a large portion of that 20, 29 years. He's back like in the program full swing over the last few years. But that was kind of my first exposure. And, and when I was ready to, to do some research and look it up, I was 21 living on the campus of Ball State and looked up, looked up the 12 steps, looked up a meeting, and I was like, ah, I don't know. By the time I was 21, I had made the jump to labeling myself as an atheist and I looked through the steps, went to that meeting, and thought, no, never mind, this, this isn't going to work for me. There's a whole lot of differences in this room and not enough similarities. Right. I had a lot of biases that were confirmed when I walked into that room that it was a bunch of old, white, divorced males. And I absolutely confirmed those. And <laughs> it was like, oh, well... But I am sure that there were females there. I'm sure there were people in their 20s, 30s, 40s. But all I wanted to focus on were those things that I knew would keep me from being able to do it. Wow. That is um, huge right there. Because same thing. After I walked out of my first AA meeting, I wanted to confirm to myself that I wasn't an alcoholic. And that's exactly what I got out of my first meeting. That's, in, that's incredible. <laughs> and so when did the switch happen? I mean, are you still atheist or agnostic? Um, yeah, what happened oh, after yeah. that? I'm, I'm as ardent about being an atheist as I've ever been. And AA is part of that reason because I'm more comfortable than I've ever been with being honest with who I am and what I am. What's the point of, of doing all this self-discovery and trying to pretend I'm something that I'm not? So from the beginning, I came in with, well, I'll, I'll be at least open-minded enough to start listening. Let's, let's see what happens from there. I haven't had any like major life-altering spiritual or religious experience. I've, I've found a way to make my beliefs or lack thereof, work within the frame of, of AA, and nothing that I've come across yet says that that's not okay to do. You know, the stuff that I'm reading, Bill Wilson was a big fan of, of bringing everybody un, under the tent. You know, it's a lot more of this back-to-basics movement 
that has pushed out some people or made some people uncomfortable with, with coming in and trying to do it differently. So Weston, what advice would you give to people? And there are a lot of them out there, including myself when I first got introduced to the program. What advice would you have to people who have trepidation with the God thing? They say, look, I, I don't believe in God or I'm agnostic. This AA thing's not for me. The biggest thing that came about for me was desperation. The, the feeling of just being just completely desperate to find something that was going to end up saving my life. Because I was... If I wasn't hours or days away from death, it was it was pretty close between my health, drunk driving, and, and things like that. And so desperation was a big part where I finally said, okay, I've I've been trying to do it my way. Let me at least open the window a crack. You know, I'm not ready to to open it all the way, but let me at least open it a crack. And when I went to treatment, I came across this this rugged old Vietnam vet who had been in and out of treatment for for thirty years, and he said, "You know, you're you're thinking too much, and you're too thinking too hard about this stuff. You need to take what works and leave the rest." And like right there, my mind just completely just exploded, and I that statement sticks with me to this day. It's kind of the rallying cry of, of my program and it changed my entire interpretation of, of what this was going to be. I was always so focused on picking out the parts that w- that wouldn't work so then I threw everything away. Oh well this part doesn't work and this doesn't work so let me throw it all away. So and I changed to a mindset of let me find a few things that can work for me, that do work for me and let's start with that as our as, as my base. So if I hear you correctly, the gift of desperation allowed you to take what you wanted and leave the rest, right? Take what works and leave the rest, yep. And listeners, if you're wondering if AA or a a spiritual-based program can work for you, but wait, you don't believe in God, the answer is yes. In two days, Weston's going to be sober for three years, which is freaking awesome, man. I got to say congratulations to you. Pat yourself on the back. And you know what? It should be a full day bonanza for for Weston out there with your wife, with your daughter. That's incredible. And I actually want to – I'm curious, like, how did you do it? So three years ago, what was it like when you Mm -hmm. first quit drinking? How did you do it? It was rough. I, I went to uh, a treatment center. After, after the incident at my mom's house, I went back home. My wife was very surprised to see me, almost shocked, like, what are you doing here? I asked you to leave. And <laughs> <laughs> I said out loud for the first time, I think I need some help with this. Uh, and okay. she didn't have to ask. She didn't have to ask what this meant, you know. She, <laughs> she knew exactly what I was referencing when I said this. She started looking up treatment centers, and we have a really the, the center that I work at is is really it's if it's not the best in the state, it's one of the best. And what is it um, called? It's called Fairbanks. Fairbanks, not in Alaska. It's Fairbanks, Fair. Indiana. Nope. Yep, Fairbanks here in Indianapolis. It's uh, Fairbanks Hospital. If you look it online, Fairbanks Hospital, Indianapolis. And so she looked up you know, treatment center, and we tried to do a walk-in on on a Sunday afternoon. That prior Friday, I had gotten a refill, refill of my script for Klonopin. The That 24 hours prior to, to waking up on my mom's couch, I had consumed the first half of, of that month-long prescription. On that Sunday, when I knew I was going to treatment, 
I decided to be a good addict and finish off that month-long prescription. Sure. So went to the um, assessment, and I couldn't keep my eyes open, slurring my words, you know, nodding out during the assessment. So they had me go over to um, the hospital, and I was in triage for hours while they were running tests. They wanted to make sure it wasn't a suicide attempt. So by the time I was ready to go back, they were closed. The Fairbanks Treatment Center was closed. So I showed back up Monday, and I woke up Monday morning in my bed. I kind of looked around like, wow, that was a pretty wild dream. You know, and it was almost like I thought the, the prior almost 72 hours was, was all a dream. And then I hear my wife say, are you ready to go? And that's when it really hit me like, oh, boy, I'm really about to go do this. I'm, and I don't think there was any hesitation. I just knew like, okay, this it's time. And so I went through a seven-day-long detox from, from, from alcohol and benzos in a, in a detox inpatient facility and, and then began a six, seven, six or seven-week intensive outpatient program at Fairbanks. And then you probably started to feel some emotions, right? Mm, yeah, pretty pretty quickly, pretty quickly within those seven days. I don't even think it, it was much past seven days before those emotions started flooding back. Yeah, what were those like? Were, was there anxiety? Oh, the, my anxiety was just through the roof. I, I didn't have anxiety prior to drinking. Drinking brought about terrible, terrible anxiety especially that time I got to college, had my first panic attack when I was in college. It was all alcohol-induced, and that's what led me to getting on the prescription for Klonopin. So, and Klonopin, over, it's not designed for long-term use. So when I would stop using it, my anxiety would skyrocket. So then I'd have to take it to bring my anxiety back down. So alcohol also decreased my anxiety. So the two biggest pieces in my medicine cabinet for self-medicating anxiety were taken away from me. So anxiety through the roof. For how long did you have the anxiety for after that? Well, alcohol and benzo users often deal with something that's called pause, post-acute withdrawal. Very, syndrome. very familiar with it. Yep. But uh, <laughs> walk us through that though. It's, it's an amazing, yeah. Tell, tell us more about it. Well, so you can you can deal with the, the, the withdrawal symptoms of whatever whatever your withdrawal symptoms were. If it was high anxiety, if it was runny nose, if it was aching legs, and you can experience that anywhere from three months to an entire year. And that's that's pretty scary. My anxiety was probably peaked out for close to six months. Wow. It was it was, it was pretty tough. How close were you, though, when that anxiety was to the level 20? You said a 1 out of 10, I was a 20. And that was my issue, too, was anxiety. Like, how close were you in those first six months saying, you know what, a drink will temporarily make this all go away? I'd like to think that right now, looking back, I, I just, I don't, I don't remember thinking it was an option. I, I really don't. I, I, I feel like when I went into treatment, I was done. That was my first time going into treatment. I had been looking for a solution to my issue for literally years. And I think I held on to it from the beginning. And I kept doing all the things that were recommended and suggested to me. And I think by doing those things, by doing those, it, it really helped 
And I kept hearing that it's going to get better. It's going to get better. And I believed it because I didn't have anything else to believe in. Weston, I think what you said is paramount where you didn't have an option. As I just mentioned that I am kind of in a recovery rut right now, which is just fine. That's how life goes. But for me, taking a drink is not an option. And I believe that option was removed with the gift of desperation. Mm, yeah, it sounds about right. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's crazy how you just said that. It just like the light bulb went off in my head. It's like, wow, that is incredible because the desperation removes that option. And I know, I know, I mean, it's, it's the drink is not going to make anything better. And where are you at right now with it with anxiety levels? You said it, it decreased at six months or it completely went away. Do you still have anxiety? Oh, yeah, it, it decreased. Oh, I, I still have it, but it's it's manageable nearly every day. From those early days, it was 9 and 10s on a 1 to 10 scale for weeks when I first got out of treatment to the point where I was physically exhausted at the end of the day just from anxiety. To today, it's a manageable 1, 2, maybe a 3 on a, on a really bad day. The, the point that I haven't gotten to yet is getting over social phobia, social anxiety. That is still pretty crippling. I, I still haven't been able to attend like a football game or a basketball game. Though those that would be that's probably would be my biggest trigger now would be huge crowds, and I just I haven't gotten to a point where my the, the anxiety doesn't jump to that 11, 12, 13 on a on a ten point scale again. I was going to say, Weston, I think that's being prudent to recognize that. So you're not putting yourself in situations you're like, whoa, shit, I am at a 20 right now. I got a drink. So, I mean, congrats to even be recognizing that. Yeah, and it just goes hand in hand with being teachable in those early days and being told you have to change people, places, and things. And I was just eating up every everything that was being thrown my way. Again, going back to that desperation, I was desperate. So, you know, I, I'm not going to say I took every single suggestion, but I took a lot, you know, a lot more than the zero that I was taking prior. <laughs> yeah. You're like, oh, God, nope, I'm out of here. You guys can have your program. I'm going to have my drink. And I got one more question before we hit the rapid fire round. Weston, what does your recovery portfolio consist of today? Walk me through a day of recovery in Weston. All right. Um, a lot of a lot of my recovery comes about from my work you know my my program and my work are separate but so much of my recovery is influenced by the work that I do being surrounded by co-workers that are in recovery being surrounded by people that are in detox level of care residential level of care and seeing what I don't want to go back to I don't want to be that guy on detox feeling like trash calling his girlfriend or wife balling on the phone, you know, just physically in shambles. I get to see that every day, and it's a constant reminder. Don't go back to that. On top of that, you know, my, my meetings wax and wane. On a bad week, maybe I don't hit a meeting. Normally, it's a minimum of two to three. That's kind of my minimum. And if times are getting real hard, you're going to see me at maybe two meetings uh, a day for a couple of days. I might hit them extra hard on the weekends. So that's I lean pretty heavy on meetings when, when the times get tough. That's, that's for sure. Recovery to me is I take a holistic approach. So AA, 12 steps, 
it's a very small part of my recovery. If I'm creating a, a, a pie chart, that's just one little part of it. Eating better has been part of it. Physical exercise has been part of it. Making sure I have plenty of alone time when, when need, you know, when necessary. That's, that's been a big part of, of recovery for me. It's not just AA, you know. I learned a lot, and I, I continue to learn a lot there, but that's not the end-all, be-all of, of what my recovery is. Absolutely, and you just mentioned the pie chart, and that's what I use as the recovery portfolio. My recovery portfolio is jam-packed, not with just a 12-step program. Heck, you know, you're on a podcast right now, which tells me at three years, you're still connected with the recovery network. Like, you're still listening to podcasts, which is fantastic. It's, it's awesome. And, and Weston, we mm -hmm. have reached the rapid-fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? All right, do my best. Oh, Weston, question number one, besides the look your mom gave you on that morning, what was your worst memory from drinking? Probably living out, I lived out in Phoenix, Arizona for, for a year, and that was when my physical addiction to it was the worst. Waking up with those, those shakes, having gone through DTs, and just, just like yelling out in pain, basically, from the convulsions that I was having in my body. Wow. And Weston, we've all heard of the aha moment. Did you ever have an oh shit moment indicating you can't control your drinking? This is one of those that in retrospect, I think I've, I've come up with a pretty good one. I was drinking at my mom's house and my wife was upstairs sleeping, I think. And I think pretty much everybody else was asleep in the house and we had been partying that night. And I'm up at, it's either like 12, 1 o'clock in the morning taking shots by myself, she comes downstairs and just gives me that look that I was talking about earlier that I got from my mom. Yep. This look of like, what is wrong with you? Why are you still drinking? Like everybody else is asleep. And, you know, I've come to understand that that's the, the phenomenon of craving that I was at past the point where I was in control of it anymore. You know, my body was just like, oh, alcohol, Keep feeding, keep feeding me. Yep, been there, and I'm glad I'm not there right now. Next question, Weston, what's your plan in sobriety moving forward? Well, I'm going to hopefully do what I did the day before and, you know, continue taking this thing one day at a time, continue learning from others, continue to be teachable, and and share the things that I've learned with, with others. That's That's a really important part of my recovery is, is sharing my, you know, sharing my experience with, with others and, and how powerful that can be. Hey, Weston, on your pie chart, what's your favorite resource in recovery? Oh, meetings are, are still really, really important. I mean, I'm, I'm going to say that's probably the, the biggest chunk followed by just interactions with, with my sponsor, coworkers in recovery, um, a couple of the different recovery podcasts that I that I listen to. And what are the recovery podcasts that you like to listen to? Well, other than other than this one that I'm on, um, there's one called uh, Recovered Podcast. Some gentlemen up in uh, Michigan, I believe, and that's where I, I I heard about this podcast was was referenced on okay. on that podcast. And then uh, another one that that's really important to me is called Beyond Belief. And it's a, a gentleman in Kansas City named John that is, it's designed for atheists, agnostics, and free thinkers in AA. 
and it's um, an opportunity for those individuals to share their stories on, on how they how they made it work for them. Gotcha. And, and Weston, in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? Day number two or three in treatment, that, that Vietnam vet changed my life forever when he said, take what works and leave the rest. Oh. And my my life and my, my program is, has, has never been the same. And once I heard that and found a way to start implementing that in my life and I'll, I'll forever be grateful. I've never seen that, that old man. I've never seen him again. I doubt I ever will. I don't remember his name. I don't remember anything about him except for that, that one line of knowledge that, that he dropped on me. Wow. And Weston, what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are in recovery or thinking about quitting drinking? I want to be that example to someone that if I can do this, if I can find a way to make this work, then literally anybody can. Literally anybody can figure this out, make it work for them. If if I was if I was able to make it work, I love it. And Weston, before we depart, give listeners your own customized. You might be an alcoholic gift line. Hold on, real quick. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Sorry, you might. You'll have to edit this part out. No, she, no worries. She's outside, sweetie. Okay, you'll be right downstairs. Okay. All right, can you can you repeat that? Because you'll have you yeah, yeah, no to take that out. Sorry. And Ty, who edits the podcast, I'm going to leave this up to you if you want to leave this in because these are conversations <laughs> with just you know these are just conversations. That's it. There's really nothing scripted. Uh, I love it. Uh, I think I heard a dog bark earlier. That's totally fine. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, uh, yeah. The question was before we depart, Weston, give listeners your own personalized. You might be an alcoholic if line. Hmm. You might be an alcoholic if you continue to drink once everybody else has been asleep for hours. If you are still thirsty at 2 o'clock in the morning and people have called it a night hours ago. Yep, I'd say that's a pretty good one, and that would define me in a nutshell. Weston, thank you so much for joining us, and congratulations you got to get there one day at a time, but in two days, that's huge, man. Congratulations. I appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Thank you, Weston. So earlier I was referring to petting zoo goats. After Googling Rocky Mountain goats, turns out they're not quite as harmless and tame as I thought they were. According to livingwithwildlife.com, you should maintain a distance of at least 50 yards from mountain goats. And I know joke was like 10 yards away. It also says never offer food to mountain goats. I usually nighttime eat, and if I had a Pop-Tart, I definitely would have offered it to the goat. Next thing it says, never urinate within 50 yards of a hiking trail. Did that like four to five times. Next thing is, leave pets at home when hiking in mountain goat habitat. Ben, the ferocious standard poodle, he was by my side. Next thing it says, do not touch, surround, crowd, or chase a mountain goat. Well, I was walking towards them, and there were five of them, and they were kind of backed up against the forest, so I'm going to just say, yep, guilty as charged on that one as well. The seventh thing it says to not do when encountering mountain goats is do not allow a mountain goat to approach too closely. Yell with a loud noise, wave your arms or an article of clothing, and if need be, throw a rock at the goat. Well, at this moment, I was staring at the Milky Way. So, oops. The last one says avoid hiking and camping in areas where mountain goats are prevalent. Well, positive six out of seven for that. And I also Googled that they're very dangerous because their horns are super sharp. And a lot of people die because they bleed out when the horn gets them in the artery in the leg. 
Ben, my poodle, and I, we were basically on Pluto while this whole event was unfolding and had no idea of the dangers, similar to the entire time when I was drinking. Think about that one for a second. Recovery elevator. We took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. 